Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody know what a salt lamp is? Anybody have one? A couple of people? In case you don't know, uh, a salt lamp is a very large chunk of salt uh, that has been mined, uh, often from the Himalayan mountains or from somewhere in Central Europe, and it is hollowed out in the middle so that a light can be placed inside of it, and when the light shines through the salt crystal, it gives off this very beautiful illumination wherever it is located. You can uh, find one of these at Walmart, (laughs) Home Depot, uh, or at a fancier store if you want to pay more. Uh, uh, But that's only the half of it, because it turns out that uh, when the light heats up the salt crystal, it begins to uh, emit and release negative ions, uh, which is a good thing because the air uh, around places like mountaintops and seashores and uh, places of running water tends to be high in negative ions while uh, interior air or recirculated air or air around uh, things like electronics tends to be lower in negative ions. The implication being that when the salt and the light begin to work together, They make the atmosphere of your life better. They make life healthier and better and stronger. Now, in in the interest of full disclosure, there are scientists who maintain that salt lamps really don't help very much. But I will assure you that they definitely help me to begin this sermon. About salt and light and the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to a a crowd on a hillside, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the questions as we begin today uh, are, uh, why does he say that? Uh, How did the people on that hillside hear it? And for what purpose does he select these images and metaphors as if to describe them as first century human salt lamps? Now, with respect to salt, uh, we know that at the time of Jesus, there were a number of different ways that it could be used, just like there are in our day today. Salt, of course, was a seasoning. It It was the spice of life, and it was used to flavor food that would otherwise have a bland taste. Salt was also used as a a preservative so that things like meat and fish and olives uh, would be packed in salt in order to maintain their usefulness. Uh, We know that salt has a medicinal purpose, that our bodies need a certain amount of salt in order to uh, be healthy and function well, which is why uh, people like construction workers or uh, professional athletes uh, will take salt tablets with them uh, when they're out in the oppressive heat of the summer. But at the time of Jesus, unlike today, salt was also far more rare far less common, much more precious, of far greater value in the world and in society than it is today because it wasn't being mined all around the world like it is today. In fact, in the heyday of the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier would actually receive a portion of his pay measured out in salt as well as in currency. And that salt payment was known as the salarium, which is where we get the word salary. 
the SALT payment was the salary. And it is also why when somebody's doing a really good job, what do we say about them? They are worth their salt. Also, salad comes from that same word, salarium or saline, because they would sprinkle salt on their greens in order to make them taste better. But salt also had a religious significance. And in the books of Leviticus and Ezra and uh, Ezekiel, uh, you have people making offerings of salt as part of their uh, offering to the temple in Jerusalem as a way of enhancing even that symbolically so that it could be the very best uh, that it could be for God. And it's also why in some parts of the Christian church around the world today, a pinch of salt will actually be placed on the tongue of a baby or a person older who is to be baptized as a way of remembering Jesus' promise that those who are in him, in Christ, baptized in him, are the salt of the earth. After which he does give us that warning that if the salt loses its saltiness, then it isn't worth anything, and it is, as he says, thrown to the ground and trampled underfoot, which they would have also understood because they would take unused or worthless salt and they would throw it back onto the ground. Or the priests at the temple in Jerusalem would take the leftover salt and they would scatter it on the stone floors of the temple courtyards to create a little traction during the winter rains. The salt that wasn't worth anything more was trampled underfoot. With respect to light, well, you know, it was also... Uh, much more precious to them, to be honest with you, than it is for us today because we take light, generally speaking, for granted unless the power goes out. We got access to light wherever we go, wherever we want it, whether it's in our homes, you know, it's in our neighborhoods, it's in the streets, it's on the highways. You can you know, build a road in the middle of the night because we have the light to do that. You can drive at night because your car has headlights. You can flip a switch and the light comes on. You even got a light Flashlight on your cell phone, I bet. But they didn't have any of that. And back then, when it got dark, it got really dark. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, they knew that he was talking about something that was very precious, very valuable to him. And then he illustrates his point by saying, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Because that city shines for all to see. And uh, as he said those words, there's a, a pretty good chance that he was probably talking about, maybe even pointing in his sermon to a city that was known as Sepphoris. And uh, the city of Sepphoris may not be very familiar to you because it is never, not even once mentioned in the New Testament, but it was actually the provincial capital of Galilee. And it was located only about three miles or so from Nazareth, between Nazareth and Cana. And King Herod Antipas was actually rebuilding the city of Sepphoris during the time of Jesus, which has led some historians to think that maybe people like Joseph, the carpenter who lived in Nazareth, or even Jesus himself during his growing up and his young life may have gone to work rebuilding the city of Sepphoris. And that would have given Jesus insight into some of his later teachings when he talks about buildings and construction and why it's important to build your life on a good, solid foundation. 
which he does in Luke chapter 6, or later on in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about the hypocrites because there was a theater in Sepphoris, and the word hypocrite in Greek means actor or play actor. And maybe Jesus went to the theater, maybe he helped build the theater, or maybe it gave him inspiration to gesture again to Sepphoris when he said later in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't act like somebody that you're not. But the big thing about Sepphoris is that it was way up on top of a hill, and people could see it from locations all over Galilee, even at night, especially at night, including the place from which Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount about a city set on a hill. And then he uses one more illustration uh, when he mentions these little clay lamps that people would fill with oil in their houses so uh, that the lamp would burn through the night and the oil would run out just as the sun came up. Because like I said, when it got dark, it got really dark. And you needed at least one lamp as a nightlight within your house. And then employing some just basic logic, he says, well, nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel basket. You put the lamp up on a stand so it gives light for all in the house. So let your light shine so that others can see it. And so with respect to you, my hope is that as all of this comes together, you can begin to see the grace flowing through the Sermon on the Mount. Because when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, what he was telling that crowd and what he's telling this crowd is that there's nothing ordinary about you. There's nothing common about you. That you are precious in the sight of God. And you are of infinite value because you have his power to change the atmosphere in this world, to make a difference in a variety of ways, just like salt. When he says you're the light of the world, he's saying that you have the power now to shine with the brightness of God in a world that can look pretty dark to people who are blinded by loss and by isolation and by a lack of purpose, or by misplaced priorities, or about fear and anxiety over the future, or about a thousand other things. I mean, you can go out there, you can light up the room with the power that I am giving to you, and you just don't know who out there might see it, or how far it might actually go. You ever been to cooking class? You know that a little salt can make a big difference. All I need to do is look up at the moon and the stars at night to see how far light can travel when it shines through the darkness. And then there are just a couple of other things uh, that I want to point out about this passage. Not so much about what Jesus says, but actually about what Jesus doesn't say. For example, he says to the crowd, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, well, you have an opportunity to be the salt He doesn't say, you know, there's a chance out there that you'll be the light. Or some of you here are the light of the world. No, he says, you are 
Why? Because at the beginning of the passage, at the beginning of the sermon, I should say, that we heard last week, he begins by telling the crowd, you are blessed, you are made holy, you are set apart, you are claimed for the purposes of God. Now, I admit, you know, there are some days when I walk out the door in the morning and, you know, it's like I'm thinking to myself, you know, here I go, salt of the earth. And then there are times when, you know, I'm walking into a tough situation as if I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, i got to be the light of the world. (laughs) But he doesn't give me the choice. He tells you who you are. And then he tells you to go out there and live that way, like salt lamps working together so that his blessings will flow and fly into this world through very special people to him like you and me. Second, notice, please, that he doesn't say, you are the light of the church. Because what he is bringing is not just for in here. It's not just for Lutherans. It's not just for Christians. This thing is for out there also. It's for the neighborhood. It's for the community. It is for the nation, for the workplace, for the school. It's for the world. It's for people you meet. It's for the gym. It's wherever you run into people. It's for every person and every experience in life, every dark moment. It is for every culture. It is for every race. It is for every religion. It's for no religion. Martin Luther King famously said, you know, that the darkness cannot overcome the darkness. Only the light can do that. Hate cannot overcome hate. Only love can do that. And then take a look at what he says at the very end of of today's passage when he says, let your light shine in this world so that others will see it. And they'll see your good works. And they will what? Give you credit? No. Do it so they will see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Fifteen years ago, a pastor by the name of Rick Warren wrote a book that begins with the words, It is not about you. The purpose of your life is greater than your personal fulfillment, than your peace of mind, than even your happiness. The purpose of your life is greater than your career, your family, and even your wildest dreams. If you want to know what on earth you're doing here, you've got to begin with God, who has created you by his purpose and for his purpose. Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. Tuesday night I was driving up New Hampshire Avenue Uh, to come to church here to uh, meet with our Futures Task Force. It was already dark. Stopped at Norwood Road out here and uh, looked over 
uh, at the church already. Several cars in the parking lot, cross up in the tower, shining brightly. Commons was lit up, classes were lit up. I could see all the way through, and I could clearly read those words above the doors to the sanctuary. God's glory, our joy. It's like a lantern. I sit there and I, I think to myself, that is one beautiful lighthouse shining in the darkness for everybody to see it. But it didn't escape me that by the time that night would be over, everybody inside the lighthouse would go out, get in their cars, and they would go to their neighborhoods, and they will go to their homes, and they'll go to the store, and they'll go to work the next day. They'll go to all kinds of other places, just leaving me to wonder what blessings have been given, and how far will they go? Some of you already know that uh, the high school youth ministry here at St. Andrew is called the Saltines for St. Andrew Lutheran Teens. And that our youth lounge, appropriately in the lower level, is called the Salt Mine. Because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And our privilege and our joy and our orders, quite frankly, in the Sermon on the Mount is to remember who we are and then to live that way until somebody in that workplace, somebody at the gym, somebody in one of those dark moments looks at you and says to you, I want what you have. So you can say to them, You can have what I have because you are also precious to God and Jesus Christ is your Lord as well. So, keep shining. Don't give up. Salt and light, like a salt lamp, working together to bring the atmosphere of grace and hope to the glory of God in the whole wide world, in Jesus' name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.